Welcome to Scavengers Horde. We're a Star Wars podcast, offering thoughts on whatever takes our fancy, be it the latest show on Disney+, Plus or a weird Legends novelization you may have forgotten existed. If you're new here, let me introduce myself. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 178, and it's 22nd of April, 2022, which is a lot of twos. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we like to kick things off by recommending a piece of media, a book, a film, a show that we've enjoyed and want to put on people's radar. So, Kirsty, what would you like to highlight? Well, the first thing I'm going to talk about is actually another podcast. Ooh, nice. Um, and- I do not mean to compare ours with hers remotely because (laughs) she's obviously on another level. But I've been really enjoying this new season of You Must Remember This, which is Karina Longworth's podcast about movies and old Hollywood. Um, It's a series on erotic 80s. So she's going through a lot of like the erotic thrillers and I've just been having a lot of fun rewatching some of those and I plan to watch some of the ones I haven't seen before. Nice. So this last couple of weeks, I've watched uh, Fatal Attraction, Basic Instinct, American Gigolo. Yeah, it's just been really interesting kind of revisiting those. A lot of them I watched when I was really quite young, probably too young. Um, <laughs> yes. So kind of going back to them now, I'm in my 30s, is an interesting experience. And obviously in 2022, as Karina talks about, it's it's a different time to when these films were made. <laughs> and, um, and that's a key aspect of them. I know you're going to talk about it later because you've seen it and I haven't. Um, I haven't watched Deep Water, which is like the new erotic thriller. And that's obviously the guy who made Fatal Attraction. So it's like in that mold. But it will be interesting once I get around to it to see if that genre does work today. And whether you can kind of update it in a way that... I'm getting the impression from reviews that it's not successful. Right. But I, I, I'm definitely intrigued. And whether... Um, the reaction to this one means that they'll kind of give up on it as a genre or if Hollywood's going to kind of keep making stabs at it. Yeah, uh, I definitely have lots of thoughts on Deep Water. Um, <laughs> I think it's worth watching, but maybe not for the reasons people would have hoped it was worth watching. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> well, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, the interesting thing about it is that like, you, you go back to watch these films and they are inherently they're pretty silly yeah and and there's a goofy element there obviously to various degrees (laughs) sure they're not all the same but um yeah (laughs) it's also a lot of what you take in with you obviously like your feelings about relationships and sex and stuff so but i I, in general i i think her podcast is incredible but this this season i'd recommend people give it a listen Okay, fantastic. Yeah, I've already listened to the first episode, which was mostly about setting up the context. And yeah, that was typically great. So I really look forward to catching up with the rest of the episodes because I'm behind by a few now. Um, And yeah, I hear that you have also watched a film about a certain Batman. Yes, I'm really late to the party. I didn't (laughs) see it in the cinema, but I've been counting down the days until I put it on HBO Max. Nice. And I'm very happy with it. Really, really liked it. Yeah, no, that's really great. I think when I saw it, I knew, you know, that it would be your type of superhero film um, for lots of reasons. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, there is a very, very broody Batman in it, which, yeah, he's just lovely as Batman. Lovely is a slightly odd word, I know, to describe a Batman actor. <laughs> he is, though. Yeah, it's true. He is. We, we love uh, masked, emo, caped 
lonely figure. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And it really leans into that vulnerability. I think if I have one complaint about that film is it's too much mask. <laughs> it, it reminded me of the old discourse about Kylo Ren, you know, and being like, I hope he's not in the mask much in episode eight. I'll be really sad if he is. Um, because, yeah, he is mostly Batman in this film, which, to be fair, you know, it's just delivering on what's promised is a film called The Batman. So <laughs> it's not called Bruce Wayne. And I understand that. Um, but yeah, I just think Robert Pattinson has great range as an actor, you know, and I wanted to see more than his eyes in his mouth. But he did a lot with both those things. So yeah, it's a good movie and people should definitely watch it. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Because you want to keep the the suspense of like, you know, Catwoman and the Riddler not being sure of his identity and everything and the juxtaposition of him with billionaire Bruce. And But then you do get lots of I was pleasantly surprised by how they handled um, his and Alfred's relationship. Yes. Um, I thought that all of that stuff was great. And Andy Serkis is always good. So, um, yeah, I just, I loved, I knew going in that it was going to have more of a noir feel. I've seen a lot of people talking about it. But um, a few weeks ago, I watched Paul Schrader's Light Sleeper with um, Willem Dafoe. And it really reminded me of that in so many ways. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, love, love a morally ambivalent kind of ambiguous loner. <laughs> <laughs> wondering what they're going to do with their lives yeah um, no and I yeah, felt like you could really tell that like the creative team behind the movie they were trying to make a movie you know not just a superhero movie and I know exactly how snobby and elitist that sounds and I'm sorry Matt Reeves is good at his job <laughs> yeah exactly it was like the whole Ryan Johnson approach to The Last Jello right he wasn't referencing other Star Wars movies or like obviously he was to some extent but not exclusively and yeah in this one Matt Reeves he wasn't just looking at other Batman movies he was looking at lots of different types of movies and drawing in influences from those which yeah really paid off Mm -hmm. very good I honestly might watch it again pretty soon nice yeah well if you can basically get it for free with your HBO Max subscription why not how did you get along with that long run time because I know every three hour movie you watch you're like it's got to justify it (laughs) I must say I think that was one of the things that detracted from my enjoyment I did think it was too protracted. So is is there stuff in there that you feel like, oh, that could have been cut? <laughs> There's lots of riddles. There is a reason for that. I know, I know. <laughs> like, and I, I guess I just found some of the like riddles themselves a bit inane. You know, like one of the riddles is about like what's this winged creature? And oh, I loved that stuff. I think, yeah, I actually I haven't even talked about him. I loved Paul Dano's riddler i think he was so funny oh i loved the performance it was wonderful yeah and there, and there was absolutely humor especially when he's revealed and you understand the exact type of character they're going for yeah so i don't want to be too explicit about what they do i know movie. i don't want to spoil anything yeah exactly it's... um but yeah i just found some of his plots and stuff a little bit dumb basically i thought yeah that honestly appealed to me i was like yeah someone who thinks they're really smart but it's actually kind of stupid <laughs> Perfect. yeah I, I think maybe i'd have a different perspective on it if i watched it again you know i might view it in that light so i think i had the take on it when i watched it the first time that the movie thought it was being clever you know with the types of riddles it was given um but yeah i think if i went into it with the mindset that yeah no actually all these people are a bit dumb and it's actually quite funny to watch them knock about and try to figure things out <laughs> i think that might be more entertaining uh, yeah, that's a good point because I saw, and this was before I'd seen the movie. I saw some reactions were like, "Oh, it's supposed to be a noir, but it's not particularly like complicated or you know difficult to figure out what's going on." I was like, "I don't think that's <laughs> what 
that going for? Yeah. It, yeah. I don't. Yeah. I don't think even typical classic noirs are that t- hard to follow. <laughs> In my experience, they're usually quite clear. It's just usually a bit of a surprise at the end. Um, yeah. And yeah, I loved um, Catwoman in that movie. I thought Zoe Kravitz was really, really great. I think I actually preferred her to Batman. <laughs> I hoped for more. I yeah. Did, I just, you know, and I, I'm sure they're talking right now about like making sequels and like whether they'll both be in them again. But I would love to see more, her take on. Yeah, more of a lead role. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they've established a really fascinating baseline for the relationship between Batman and Catwoman. So I'd love to see that explored more. Yeah, I saw that he Reeves had done a commentary and he was talking about like that cat, the dynamic. And he was like, oh, you know, and it, it honestly, I know this is my Raylo brain, <laughs> but it reminded me honestly of some of the things that Ryan was saying in his TLJ commentary. Nice. Was that, you know, they can't be together right now and maybe next time they meet, they'll be on even further opposite sides and like, yeah. you know, teasing how that dynamic will evolve. Never yeah, apologize yeah, for Raylo brain. <laughs> Raylo Brain is good. I know we have the audience here, so it's okay. <laughs> it's what you expect from me. Exactly, it's a safe space. But yeah, I had exactly the same vibe. Um, and yeah, they just have really, really nice chemi- chemistry together. And they're both very attractive. They're both very attractive. There's lots of very strong eye contact, which I appreciated. Um, yeah, so A plus all around. Um, and yeah, and I can see you also watched um, season two of Russian Doll, which is yes. an impressive binge because it only came out really recently. I I did. I haven't binged anything like that in a long time, but I'd been really looking forward to it. And I think it's only seven episodes, and they're like half an hour, so it's manageable. Nice. Um, yeah, I just I think she's so perfect in that role. Um, I don't think I loved season two as much as season one, and it it is quite different if you go in just expecting a total rehash it's not it's asking different questions and it's using kind of different tropes and um but i i think that's ultimately a good thing even though i didn't love it as much as the first one it has like a different rhythm to it um it's going into different relationships and dynamics and um yeah i thought it was well done and it made me even more excited for the mystery series that she's going to have with Ryan on, is it Peacock? Yes, I believe, yeah, which does not exist in the UK, so I hope we get it somewhere. Um, But yeah, I'll have to be patient and wait and see. I'm sure it will show up, you know, they have all these complex deals with the different UK broadcasters, but yeah, I'm just looking from afar right now. It's like, oh, flag means death, I really want to see that, but because Mm. everything's so slow to get here, it hasn't broadcast yet so it's very it's sad. surprising that that's still the case in this day and age i know it? exactly and the thing is everything's so like instant you know on twitter and stuff with everyone talking about the hot new thing that then by the time it actually comes out in the uk you know it feels kind of irrelevant and i still want to the watch it gone. yeah the hype's gone yeah. uh so yeah it's a bit of a bummer but yeah no i'm also really looking forward to season two of russian doll i loved the first season it's that rare tv show that i really found compelling and yeah, Natasha Lyon is just such a genius and such a great performer that I'm really curious to see what she brings to it and how they hopefully deepen and expand that character because, yeah, she's super interesting. Mm-hmm. How about yours, your pick? <sighs> yes, I have quite a lot <laughs> because it, it's been three weeks since we last recorded um, and I've watched and actually read a great deal, which is unusual for me because I'm a very slow reader compared to Kirsty. <laughs> You say that, but I've barely read anything these past few weeks, honestly. Oh, I kept okay. picking things up and then being like, oh, I'm not loving this. I'll try something oh, else. Oh, that's a shame. So. 
I find that I tend to go through waves of reading, you know, like when I'm like on a sprint with reading, I'll read like a bunch of books in a, in a row and really enjoy all of them. And that's what just happened, basically. Yeah. Um, and that's a great feeling. But yeah, then there's months and months where I can't find a single thing that actually compels me to keep reading. So I know I share your pain. I know how you feel. Okay, so things I've enjoyed. I have watched the whole of the miniseries called The Dropout. Um, which has Amanda Seyfried as Elizabeth Holmes um, and she is um, the woman who created Theranos which is obviously one of those famous like I try to think about the best way to describe it it's like a bogus company yeah it's a Silicon Valley thing yeah right? exactly it's Where a it Silicon like Valley a startup that con. radically overpromised, and essentially there was a great idea behind it but they didn't have the necessary technology or means to deliver on that idea, even though they managed to rack up incredible backing, you know, from these huge corporations and these like really well-established like billionaires, people literally like Rupert Murdoch who invested money in this company. Um, And it's basically about, you know, what motivated this woman to start the company in the first place. And then it's about cataloging the rise and fall of this thing essentially and I knew the story of Theranos before I went in which I think is why I watched it because I thought it was an interesting story you know be careful what you wish for I guess um and it was just really well done you know it was a well-told story the performances were great um especially by Amanda she was really really fantastic and yeah it's just a good watch you know it's not like an all-time favorite tv show or anything but it's really watchable it's well written it's well acted it's on disney plus in the uk which i know will sound really strange to americans but i think it's hulu exactly yeah it's because hulu is basically rolled into disney plus in the uk and yeah i did read that disney here are starting to think about how to roll more adult stuff into disney plus as a platform yeah it feels weird though, doesn't it? Because then it's like, well, what's the point of Hulu then? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they bought Hulu, but maybe the eventual plan is to kind of consolidate them. I don't know. Yeah. Mm. And they're going to expand the meaning of Disney. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> yeah, is that something that you think you might check out at some point, Kirsty? Yeah, although I don't, I'm not super familiar with the story. I'm like vaguely aware of it, mm. but I, I haven't like seen any interviews with her or anything. And I, I guess I am kind of intrigued by what would possess someone to do that sort of thing. In so. that case, I think it might be even more interesting, you know, because I kind of knew how things were going to unfold when I went into it. Right. But for you, you know, the twists and turns would be more unexpected. So yeah, okay. it might be more of a thrill ride, if you can call it drama series about a company for a ride but yeah <laughs> um then the next thing i want to recommend is a bit more obscure it's an italian film called the most beautiful wife which is a terrible title but whatever um, and in the uk you can watch it on amazon prime it's included so no reason not to watch really and it's based on a true story it's set in i think sicily um and it's essentially the case that there's like a big mafia culture in the town that the film is set in and there's a young up-and-coming gangster and he like spots this young girl who's literally like 15 or 16 it's way too young it's really creepy um who he wants to marry they begin like seeing each other um but she begins to realize that he's a terrible person and eventually culminates in him kidnapping her and assaulting her because that was a custom where under those circumstances, the girl would essentially be forced to marry her rapist. 
the whole point of the film is that she says no she refuses to go along with that you know and she breaks this very old and well-established custom it's about exploring the social consequences of that you know what it mm. means to take that sort of decision in that sort of culture um and yeah it's just really really powerful and well done um the lead actress in the film i think she was only 14 or 15 when she filmed it and it's one of the most remarkable like child performances like i've seen in anything you know she's just really extraordinary and just the level of courage displayed by that character in that film i found it incredibly moving um it was something i'd never heard of before i was literally just scrolling mindlessly through prime one day and i came across it and thought it looked interesting and i was just really taken aback by how much i liked it so yeah i really strongly recommend that it's a fascinating story and i feel like it's barely known you know i've never seen it on a list even you know of recommended movies um but yeah i think it deserves to be on more people's radar yeah, I added added that to my watch list on Letterboxd after I saw you'd seen it. Nice. And um, it's only got like forty reviews. Yeah, so it I know. obviously is quite obscure. I think I think you can rent it on Amazon here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's not on any of the platforms otherwise. But yeah, it looks very good. I will say that people should watch out because I believe there is an English dub out there, and I saw like a clip of the English dub, and it was one of the most appalling things I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it's that awful sort of like old-fashioned dub where like the yeah. lip syncs are completely wrong, oh, and oh god, yeah. So just avoid that. Make sure that the version you watch is in the Italian language with subtitles. <laughs> so yeah, otherwise you'll sorely regret that. Um, okay, then the next film, which I'm happy to say is a much more cheerful prospect because it's so silly, <laughs> is Deep Water. Um, and that's also on Amazon Prime in the UK. Um, do you know where it is in the US, Kirsty? Hulu, I think. Hulu, okay. Yeah, so yeah. again, it shows the complete chaos of where all these films end up right on different sides of the ocean. It's, it was kind of a thing where I was slightly bored for the first two thirds. But then the final third is positively transcendent. It's so funny. It's really... Oh my god. Like, I'm not going to spoil anything, but I'll say that there's a chase scene where Ben Affleck is on a bike. And when you see this film, you'll recognise this chase scene and just know that I was laughing hysterically. Is it meant to be funny? I'm not sure. Um... I kind of hope it wasn't meant to be funny because that makes it even funnier to me. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, wow. Um, when you see it, it's almost like perfectly calculated for lols. You know, why that <laughs> sequence is so funny. Um, it's just like completely preposterous, you know, the point that the film has reached by the time that chase sequence happens. But it was just like, Mwah, chef's kiss, perfect. <laughs> Sorry, I know I'm not offering like particularly profound thoughts on this, but that's really what sticks in my mind. Yeah, I, I don't want to ask too many questions about Deep Water because I do plan on watching it anyway. Yes. But um, I've seen a lot of people complaining like, oh, it's an erotic thriller, but it's not thrilling or erotic. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, the amount of sex in an erotic thriller can vary wildly. Yeah. You know, and like Fatal Attraction doesn't really have a turn. That's not really the point where basic instinct, I mean, does. So... I don't know. I will say um, that there's almost like a negative chemistry between Anna de Armas and Ben Affleck, which is extraordinary because we obviously all know they were dating, you know, as a result of making this movie together, right? Was that a genuine relationship? I don't know. Maybe it was a PR relationship, <laughs> you know, but there's like literally the opposite of chemistry between their characters. 
he's engaged to Jennifer Lopez again now. So <laughs> I want to see the film about that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think to an extent it's deliberate because this isn't a spoiler. It's literally the premise of the film. Like they're basically living together and the husband tolerates his wife's affairs. You know, that's in the log line of the film. I'm not spoiling it. Um, and so, you know, there's lots of simmering sexual frustration, <laughs> if you will. And I think that's what they were going for, but I just don't think it came off well at all. And yeah, it definitely okay. was not erotic. It was just really funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, to you. Yeah, to me. To me. I do have a weird <laughs> sense of humour, so I will concede that it might just be to me. But I have seen other people say they also found the chase funny. So I'm okay. dying for you to watch it. <laughs> I, I will to... soon, I promise. Yeah, I need to know if you find it funny. Uh, okay, then I'm back to heavier territory for my next um, recommendation, so apologies for that. Um, and that's a film called Prayers for the Stolen. I saw it in cinemas, but it's coming to movie soon. Um, and it's already on Netflix in America. Uh, yeah, so the film is set in Mexico um, in a rural village, um, and it's based on like a really sad and tragic reality that young girls in some of these rural villages... Um, that you know are dominated by the drug trade and human trafficking and things a lot of young girls are just like kidnapped overnight you know and they just vanish entirely um and in the film the focus is on three young girls you you meet them when they're about 10 i think and then there's a flash forward about two-thirds through the film where you see them a few years later when they're teenagers and it's about what it's like for these three young girls to grow up in that sort of environment and how their parents try and protect them from the traffickers, you know, by like cutting the girl's hair off and like they have like a a pit in the ground that one of the daughters can hide in, you know, when people might come to the house in search of her. And it's a really like dark, grim story, but it's really beautifully filmed and it's a really well told narrative with great performances, great direction, just the whole package. Um see it's heavy, you know, and it's obviously the kind of heavy film that is based on a really awful real situation for some people um so be aware of that when you go into it but i think it's totally worth watching so yeah i recommend that mm. yeah i put that on my netflix list nice um okay and then the final thing i want to recommend is a novella called love of seven dolls by paul gallico who also wrote the poseidon adventure which is really weird to me <laughs> Because this is nothing like the Poseidon adventure. Um, And I think this novella was originally published in French in the 1950s. And the premise is that there's a young woman, I think she's about 19, and she is disillusioned with life. You know, she's failed, you know, in the job she's tried. um, But she's wanted to try her hand at the theatre. And she's about to throw herself into the Seine, you know, like kill herself. But just before she can do so, she hears some voices calling to her from a puppet show nearby because she's walked through a carnival. Um, And she goes up to the puppet show and she starts interacting with the puppets. And she finds herself like really responding to them, you know, as if they are completely real. You know, she believes in them entirely. And she essentially gets sucked into the like puppet show, like the whole engine of it. And she meets the like master behind the puppet show and he is a complete asshole, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it's this apparent contradiction between, you know, the what she loves in the puppets and what she hates in the man who controls them, you know, and exploring the relationship between her and the puppet master. It probably sounds a little bit twee and whimsical, and it is quite whimsical in certain ways. 
but it's also pretty dark and heavy and in certain ways hashtag problematic so I would understand someone reading this and being like I find this morally abhorrent I do not like this but for me it well, really worked fiction. on yeah it's fiction it kind of felt like an Angela Carter style fairy tale you know it had a lot of those vibes to me mm. so yeah I loved it I thought it was brilliant and it's a very short read as well it's under 100 pages so very quick to get through yeah, if you compare something to Angela Carter, that immediately has me interested. Nice. So. Yeah, well, I hope you like it if you do check it out. So, right, let's go into the news section now. Um, so, yeah, it's obviously been a couple of weeks since we last recorded. Um, so some of this news, in air quotes, is actually quite old. Although one thing that we're going to talk about is really new. So that's exciting. Um, but, yeah, we'll just fly through this as quickly as we can. Um, so yeah, the first thing is that we've actually had direct mention from Donald Glover of his apparent participation in the Lando series that was announced a couple of years ago now. Um, so yeah, could you read out what we have about this, please, Kirsty? Uh, yeah, so um, Jimmy Kimmel asked him about working on the Lando project. Glover certainly didn't deny his role. Am I? Just telling all my business. No, yeah, I have a lot of things. I like to blossom, then go away. Right now is definitely the start of another one of those. I have like a ton of stuff I've been working on, but I just want it all to come out at the same time. So I feel like that's what's important. <laughs> Don't ask me about it, basically. Yeah, no, exactly. it's a little bit cagey, which I understand because, yeah, I'm sure this thing has been in development for a while and they're probably going back and forth over what it's even going to be. Um, but yeah, I think the main reason we wanted to talk about this is that... I don't know about you, Kirsty, but I kind of felt like this might be dead because it had been so long since we'd heard anything about it. Well, yeah, and when they announced it, they didn't mention Donald Glover. Yeah. So we didn't even know that he was involved. Exactly. Like we hoped, but... Yeah, I think it was kind of an assumption that he would be because it came out when Solo was actually still quite fresh, you know. Um, but yeah, this is like the first positive mention that we've had of it from Glover. So yeah, I really hope he does come back for it. I really liked his performance as Lando in Solo. Um, but at the same time, it does like boggle my mind a bit because obviously they've really doubled down on CGI Luke, right? In like the Mandoverse stuff and lately in the Book of Boba Fett. Mm. And so this is going to be like, again, a similar thing, a young Lando. So they're going to have a young Lando running around who's Donald Glover. And then they're going to have a young Luke running around who's like creepy CGI like Mark Hamill. And I know then almost certainly not going to directly interact in this Lando show, or at least I bloody well hope not. <laughs> Keep Luke far away from it. Um, but yeah, I, I just have a feeling of dissonance about that, I guess. Yeah, there is this strange, like, if you follow that logic, it's like, what's, is it just that you don't think that Mark Hamill is replaceable as an actor? Or like, the love that fans have for him is, is so much more than like they would for Billy D. Williams or Orlando as a character. Yeah, I don't quite understand it, but yeah, it's not this this is good news to me because I'm obviously in the camp where I do prefer the recasting. Same, yeah. No, I much much prefer seeing like actual living, breathing humans play these roles. <laughs> so, and it, yeah. and it's a relief to see that they're not like automatically canning anything that had to do with Solo just because that film in their eyes wasn't like a resounding success exactly yeah i can keep it my wasn't. little votive candle for akira content alive and i know they've done lots of akira stuff in the comics i'm sorry i'm still not going to read the comics <laughs> i know that says a lot about me i'm sure the comics are good but 
yeah, I, I would want live action Kira. I'm a snob, I admit. <laughs> I don't think it's snobby to, like, you know, that's just your preferred medium. Yeah. Thought a way to in- enjoy a Star Wars story. Yeah, thank you. TM. So. Yeah. No, it totes is. Yeah, then another thing that we wanted to talk about is that we've had some schedule announcements for what's going to be happening at Star Wars Celebration. Um, and so I won't like read out all the nitty gritty of what's in each description. So we'll get a bit repetitive fast and it's all PR speak. But basically on the Thursday, they're having a filmmakers panel. Um, and that's going to be discussing, you know, the projects that are being created by the live action filmmakers. When I first saw this announced, I was like, oh, movies. But then I read the description and it's like they're including Kenobi and or and Mando and stuff and that. It's like, oh those aren't movies yeah i i think they've been pretty clear of the language unfortunately that is live action filmmakers and i think their definition of film is clearly not a feature film. yeah encompassing the disney plus shows so like you're not going to bring out taika watiti or patty jenkins or <clears throat> ryan johnson yeah i reckon that there's going to be some you know surprises some people who are working on the I films hope so I can bring myself to accept that it's just going to be about those three shows, you know, because the three shows they name check in the description are Obi-Wan Kenobi and or The Mandalorian. And then they're going to have a Mando panel on its own anyway. Yeah, exactly. I I will roll my eyes, you know, if there's like loads and loads of Mando stuff in this filmmaker's Maybe panel. Maybe Leslie Headland will be involved. I would really I hope like. so. Yeah, yeah, I would strongly, strongly hope so. Um, So... Yeah, uh, I think this, like to me, sounds like the most interesting panel, and it's the one where we're most likely to get the cool stuff come out, in my opinion. Not to say there won't be cool stuff at other panels, obviously will, um, but you know, like I want to see that trailer for Andor, um, and obviously we're not going to be there in person, and they might do that really shitty thing where they just show it for the people in the room and they don't put it online, but I hope they don't do that, because <laughs> it would be sad. <laughs> Um, but yeah, is there anything you would most want to see from this? You know, Kirsty, like a particular trailer, like Ryan Johnson popping up out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, that would be my dream. Yeah, same. Um, you know, it's probably not going to happen, and I've accepted that. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, if I had to pick what it would be, it would be, yeah, Ryan's trilogy. Yeah. No, that would be like my dream pick. I think my realistic pick would be like actual substantial content about what Acolyte even is yeah same yeah because i'm really excited for acolyte i have seen rumors going out that they're going to start filming later you know like start in august maybe um and i think there were previously rumors about them starting in june so it sounds like it's been pushed back a little bit but i my understanding is that that's relatively normal you know for tv shows Mm. that things get shuffled around so i just hope it starts filming soon so i want to watch it (laughs) do you think there's a chance that they'd have stuff about tikers because like thor has to be coming out not too long after that right so what's next on his schedule yeah i'm really not sure what's up next for taika actually um i'd like to think that you know they're going to shunt him towards actually working on star wars not to say he's been avoiding it like a truant schoolboy (laughs) for sure he hasn't um but i do really want to see what he comes up with and i would love to learn more about what that project will be so yeah i would be really pleased if we saw an appearance from him and if he was one of those special guests Hmm. Yeah, it's very mysterious. Yeah, so then on Saturday, um, 28th of May, there is a Mandoverse panel. Is it called Mandoverse or is that just what you're That's calling it? That's probably just what I'm calling it, to be honest. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, but the actual description is quite formal and just calls it Mandalorian. 
Um, although actually, no, the panel is called Mando Plus, a conversation <laughs> with John Favreau and Dave Filoni. And I personally find it quite hilarious. So that makes me think of like a spin-off like streaming company that is just Mando shows. I mean, I guess it like kicked off the Disney Plus original. It was the first show. Yeah, right? it was. It's so corny though. And now Mando it has all Plus. Of, yeah, well, of course it's corny that like, they are. <laughs> Very corny. <laughs> it, Okay, so what comes under that then? Because does Ahsoka count as like a Mandalorian? Oh, spin-off? I would think so for sure. Yeah, because she was first introduced in The Mandalorian season two, right? Obviously, I know I mean... with a long history of being in Clone Wars, but you know Rosario Dawson as that character, she originates from Mandalorian, right? She does. I just conceptually, I find this whole thing kind of strange that it's like, well, of course, all of these things are part of the Mandoverse. I'm like, what is that? It's the Star Wars universe, and the Mandalorian was just a character that I was interested in seeing his story, yeah. and then it's now it's like this whole thing. And <laughs> sorry for me, it's fast becoming a means of quarantine in the projects that Favreau and <laughs> Filoni are closely involved but I with. I like Din. I do. I like Din. I like Din like Din story. <laughs> I'm being mean. Oh my god, it's so funny. It's just it's so it's odd, but other people love it. So yeah. No, exactly. And I am genuinely looking forward to Mando season three and I will keep the flame alive that is actually about Din. <laughs> so yeah, time will tell. Hopefully we'll learn more about it through this panel. So yeah. yeah. Um, and then just very quickly on Sunday 29th of May, there's going to be a Bad Batch panel. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised to see this, to be honest, because I hadn't heard anything about the Bad Batch. Yeah, no same. Like, I know they'd said way back that we would probably get a second season, but I just kind of, I'd, I'd ran it off. I hadn't like thought about it anymore. Yeah, I must say, like, I enjoyed Bad Batch, you know, I felt it was, and some of the animation was genuinely stunning in that show, you know, I think it had really good production values, but I feel like it's made very little impression, like, outside of, like, even in my very specific sphere of stars Twitter, you don't really see many people talking about Bad Batch, so. I think you do when it's on, Yeah, as you say, like, once the episodes are over. I think it's because it's only been one season so far. Yeah. It's, it's, it is very early days, and I, I expect them to get quite heavy in a second season. But, yeah. I guess I'm just you wondering, know. you know, if they'll give it the Resistance treatment. So obviously, poor Resistance got a second season and then done, which I still think is a real shame. So I think that show could have gone to more interesting places if they'd kept it running. Yeah. So I hope they give Bad Batch more of a chance, but... Yeah, I, I'm just curious. I think it was at Celebration that they might have confirmed that season two was the last season of that show. So it'll be interesting to see if they give much of a sense of the further outlook, you know, for Bad Batch here. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, we will see. I'm just being a pessimist, so ignore me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just some of the decisions just seem a little baffling to like an outsider who doesn't know you know, like the internal reasons for something like cutting resistance short. Yeah. It's like, oh, we really like that show. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It's quite disappointing when you get invested in this whole like group of new characters and stuff and then they're taken from you. So yeah, hopefully that doesn't happen. So I do know that, yeah, obviously like I have my point about there not being a great deal of chatter, but I know there are people who really do love the show and the characters. So yeah, I hope that it gets enough more of a chance. Um, yep, and then the next thing to mention is that there are rumours that we might be getting a season two of Star Wars Visions, perhaps even later this year. Um, this is from CineLinks, which have had a relatively decent track record, I believe, of rumours and reports. Could you read it out, please, Kirsty? 
Over the last few days, I've had multiple independent sources reach out to tell me some good news. Not only is Star Wars Visions 2 in the works, and pretty much has been since the first season hit, but it's set to arrive this year. Timing is tough to pin down, but I've heard both September and October thrown out there, so I think a general fall release would be what we're looking at. While I haven't been able to pin down which animation companies will be getting this time around, I've heard there will be some returning studios who will be doing follow-ups on stories and characters from the first season. Again, I have no details on the shorts themselves, so I can't tell you which continuations we might see. Either way, I'm pretty damn excited. Well, I'm excited too, because I really loved Visions. It was honestly one of my favourite star shows for a long time. How about you, Kirsty? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Definitely some more than others, so I'd be interested to see which ones get follow-ups. Yeah. There, there are a few that I'm like, oh, I really want to see what happens next. Nice. Yeah, which ones so, in particular are you most interested in seeing follow-ups to? Village Bride is a, a big one. Yep. What about you? Akakiri is a big one for me. Yeah. yeah. I wondered about that one, like whether it was supposed to be just kind of left there on a cliffhanger. Or, and the Ninth Jedi as well. That's already interesting premise yeah. it's like oh I'd, yeah i want would like to see that developed further um but yeah in any event i am very much looking forward to more visions so i really hope that's true i'd imagine that if it is happening then it will be confirmed at celebration so we shouldn't have long to wait but yeah fingers and toes crossed because visions are some of my favorite stars in a long time mm-hmm. yeah i didn't dare to hope for more of that to be honest yeah. because it must be so labor intensive to make those oh same yeah the shorts were so gorgeous okay cool and then we will finish out the news section with hot of the press news that natalie holt who did the wonderful score for loki um has been announced as the composer for obi-wan kenobi um and yeah this came to us through vanity fair and natalie gave an interview to them where she spoke about working on the show and working with john williams specifically um, because he's come back to do a theme for Obi-Wan himself. Uh, yeah, could you read out the excerpts I've singled out, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. They ask her, what can you tell me about your approach? How did you begin developing the music on this show? Well, I think I've just always been a huge Star Wars fan. I watched the original trilogy with my dad when I was five years old. So the music from John Williams basically narrated my childhood. E.T., Raiders, Jurassic Park. So yeah, my starting point was just being a huge mm-hmm. fan of the music for the show already. I'm a violinist and I come from an orchestral background, so I've been able to do something on an epic scale with these big forces. How did you and Williams come to work in tandem? Obi-Wan is a legacy character that John hadn't written a theme for because he died quite early on in A New Hope. It's the only legacy character that he hadn't done. So he spoke to Lucasfilm president Kathleen Kennedy and said, I just want to write Benny a theme. (laughs) So who can deny him that? And he did. He wrote the Obi theme and it just embodies the spirit of the show entirely so cute on so many levels <laughs> oh my god i love that john williams calls obi-wan benny that's adorable yeah that's a genuine surprise yeah. <laughs> but yeah i think it's fantastic that natalie has come on board for this show because yeah the loki score that's easily the most memorable and well done i think score for any of these it's Disney really Plus shows. Yeah, it's just really, really great. Although not to discount what um Ludwig does on the Mandalorians, I think that's also really top tier stuff. But yeah, Loki edges it out. I think Natalie Holt is a genius. Um and I believe she's also the first female composer to take the lead on a Star Wars project. So yeah, a real landmark, which is really great. I, I think friend of the show, Christy Carew, will be very happy to hear this news. 
yeah it's great news and i've seen a lot of fans like wish it into existence like after loki was out they were like oh what if she did something for star wars you know i think she's been open about being a star wars fan um yeah very good news and also good news that john williams i mean obviously we knew that he was going to work on the obi-wan theme before but like just the fact that they've been working together on it yeah and and she's in support of that and i just think it's really sweet yeah, same. And it might just be like a cute story, you know, with him like going up to Kathleen Kennedy and be like, I want to do this. Like the skeptical part of me is. It's like... nice that he has affection for these characters because he did the, you know, he scored the prequels. That's obviously a huge part of Obi-Wan's story. And this is kind of like the bridge between those. So Yeah. No, it's really yeah. nice. Like he's like over 90 now, you know, right? So the fact he still has this much like enthusiasm to like create music and like wants to and is specifically thinking about certain characters and how he can embody them through his music i think that's really lovely Mm -hmm. very nice right so now it's time for our spotlight section so i think we've mentioned or at least alluded to this before but this time what we wanted to do was talk about the matrix films so that's from the um, original matrix through to the latest one or perhaps final one who knows the matrix resurrections that came out in december 2021 um and we're going to talk about them in relation to the star wars movies that have come out in broadly the same time span as those matrix movies so in simple terms that's the prequels and the sequels um because yeah we just kind of felt it would be an interesting exercise to compare and contrast these movies because in a way they occupy a similar space you know they're these big budget studio sci-fi movies that like at least in the case of the prequels and all the matrix movies have a strong sense of the author behind them you know george lucas for star wars and then the wachowskis for the matrix films and yeah i think there's just interesting points of convergence and divergence in terms of what they're doing and how they interact with the context in which they emerged um so yeah what are your feelings about this whole idea Kirsty, and why we're doing this i think i probably originally suggested it but you're obviously also a big fan of the matrix so i know you were very much on board yeah i think you did first suggest it and i think at first i was like oh god what would there be to say (laughs) (laughs) no that's fair it didn't didn't immediately strike me as like beyond you know we've both seen resurrections and maybe we would mention it as part of like the intro when we talk about non-star wars things but the the more i thought about it and the more we kind of talked about it as like a kind of possible connection i was like oh yeah they are they are connected like beyond us being fans of both franchises like i just think culturally the the parallels are pretty interesting and as you say because like the prequels are coming out around the time of the matrix trilogy and then resurrections has there's been such a leap forward and they're obviously it's closer in line with the sequels and there is this kind of interesting conversation going on between the various creators and their fandoms and the meanings and messages that people extrapolate and maybe misinterpret arguably and and I don't know, there's just a lot of interesting stuff to... I don't know if we'll have a chance to touch on everything that we would want to, but um, maybe provide some food for thought for people. Um, and I know that like there are probably lots of people who love Star Wars who've never seen The Matrix. But for me, I mean, I've been a huge fan of The Matrix 
since I first saw it, uh, probably in 2000, and, and then saw the sequels in the cinema. Nice. That's been um, on a VHS tape, Kirsty. It was. <laughs> nice. And I have strong memories of seeing it for the first time. It really blew my mind and shaped, you know, what I, I realised I loved about movies and what was possible. Um, and I guess same with Star Wars, right? So, um, yeah, they're very, like, formative. Um, yeah, I think there's just a lot, a lot, a lot of interesting stuff to consider. No, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, and I think... As Kirsty has just explained their introduction to the Matrix, I think it would be helpful, you know, to contextualize both of our initial experiences of it. Um, so yeah, I had a w- weird journey towards discovering the Matrix because I think it w- I was that cliche where there was a certain point in the early two thousands where religious education classes in the UK would default to using the Matrix as an example to illustrate certain philosophical concepts. (laughs) So I vividly remember being in RE class at secondary school and them showing us the scene with the pills, you know, red pill, blue pill. And I can't even remember the point that the RE teacher was trying to make. Yeah, I kind of want to know what point they were trying to make there. <laughs> so, I'm sure looking back, it was probably some like really like basic point. <laughs> but yeah, I know that was my first exposure to The Matrix. I didn't see any of the films in cinemas when they first came out. And I might be wrong, but my feeling is that I didn't watch any of The Matrix films until after I watched Jupiter Ascending. <laughs> Which is quite the confession, and I'm aware of that, because Jupiter Ascending came out in 2015, and I love Jupiter Ascending to bits. Like, I'm a complete apologist for it. I think it's fabulous, and I recommend it. I still haven't seen it. I really need to rectify that. We've got to do a Jupiter Ascending spotlight start. Because honestly, if anything is the Wachowski Star Wars, it's Jupiter Ascending. I think in this discussion, there's going to be a lot of emphasis on contrast. You know, because I think they're both big sci-fi properties, The Matrix and Star Wars. But I think in terms of their intent and what the ethos is behind them, I think they're doing very different things a lot of the time. Mm. But yeah, anyway, so I watched The Matrix after I saw Jupiter Ascending. um, And I kind of have... I think it's also worth briefly summarising feelings about the film. So I'll let you go after I've done my feelings, Kirsty. So first Matrix, I think it's really good. Having seen it at such a distance from when it first came out, it didn't have that mind-blowing impact for me anymore. You know, because obviously I'd seen other films emulate The Matrix before I saw The Matrix itself, if that makes sense. Um, So yeah, it didn't quite have that same wow factor, but it's clearly a really well-done movie. You know, really entertaining, really well-constructed, some fascinating ideas. Matrix Reloaded might just be my favourite, which I know sounds like an edge-lord opinion, but I genuinely love it and how it deconstructs a lot of the assumptions that the first film seemed to establish. So yeah, I love Matrix Reloaded. I'm not a big fan of Matrix Revolutions. I think it's definitely the weakest of the four. And Matrix Resurrections, I really, really like. And I think it's doing some fascinating stuff with the whole meta aspect of it and how it sort of re-establishes an ethos behind all four films by the time it reaches its climax and we'll talk about that sort of thing more in detail later on but yeah could you briefly sum up your feelings about the four films Kirstie just an introduction to me the first Matrix is a masterpiece like it's hard for me to talk objectively about that movie because I just love it so much 
probably in my top 10 movies of all time wouldn't want to hear a bad word about it um and then i i enjoyed the sequels as well and you know re-watching them before resurrections came out i definitely think that reloaded is a strong film as you say it does a lot of interesting things with kind of the assumptions that the matrix um inspires um asks a lot of interesting questions expands the universe um good performances and also i just love the love story i really appreciate that you get more with neo and trinity and obviously that has ongoing impact for especially resurrections later on um i I feel similarly to you um with the third movie i just i think there is some good stuff in there um you know especially more stuff that focuses on neo and trinity but unfortunately i don't think that's where the overall emphasis is and i just kind of get lost in big battle scenes but i appreciate that there are going to be different kinds of fans out there who might respond to that stuff much more positively um and then resurrections oh my god i was absolutely buzzing for this film i had not been as excited for a movie since the last jedi oh so amazing it was really nice to honestly the night before i was like vibrating oh my god <laughs> my That's hands so were always shaking i kept saying like i can't believe i get a new matrix film tomorrow. yeah but in terms of like how i feel about resurrections and kind of what the conversation has been about that i i really i really admire and respect the film yes i think it does a fantastic job at what it wants to do i can also see why some people don't like it so it for me it works I think if people had gone in hoping for something different, it's completely understandable to be disappointed. For sure. Yeah, my dad hasn't seen any of the Matrix films. He has no interest in any of them. But I was watching the Matrix Resurrections when visiting my parents. My dad happened to be in the room at the, during the scene, you know, where they literally name check Warner Bros in the movie. And he like did a double take and was like, <laughs> did I just hear what I thought I heard? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yes, you did. <laughs> yeah yeah it's just not gonna be for everyone exactly it makes (laughs) lots of strong choices but i think that's what makes it so interesting to discuss and i think that's a big part of why i wanted to do this in the first place you know so i found what resurrections was doing so fascinating so yeah i'm gonna try and pace us so that we hopefully have quite a decent chunk of time to talk about resurrections and what that film's doing towards the end um be able to get there and i promise that we won't completely forget star wars i'd imagine the emphasis will be more on the matrix because obviously we will have covered a lot of the star wars topics before so we don't want to completely repeat ourselves when talking about the star wars stuff but obviously it will come into it so it's about looking at both to some degree yeah and i guess the people listening to us are going to be quite familiar with the reactions to those movies as they came out and we actually did a, a series on like the fandom reaction to the prequels as they were coming out relatively recently didn't we so it kind of feeds into that well exactly yeah so let's rewind back to 1999 and that is a year in which two big films came out they actually came out pretty close to each other um, because the matrix came out in america in march 1999 and the phantom menace came out in may of the same year so there's literally just less than two months between them so essentially it's understandable that they will have invited frequent comparison and they sure did there are many many contemporary think pieces still on the internet from 1999 that like compare and contrast them you know which i think is a big part of what led to this um discussion um so yeah what i wanted to do first is look at what context did these films come out from so the matrix and the phantom menace 
and then how were they received and then how were they like compared at the time you know what were they doing and how were they similar how were they different etc um so one of the important things to mention throughout this discussion is that the wachowskis do not like giving interviews <laughs> they're pretty famous for this and they actually had it written into their contract for reloaded and revolutions that they would not have to give any media interviews whatsoever <laughs> and i respect that as a boss move yeah. um, but they did give a few interviews when the original matrix came out um, and that's helpful for our purposes because it gives a sense of where they were coming from in terms of why they were creating this movie and what went into it um, so yeah could you read out that first quote we have from the new york times um kirsty please the film grew out of the siblings' long-time fascination, since they were teenagers, with ideas that challenged current perceptions of reality. They said they were also intrigued by the way mythology and the internet informed culture. The script was a synthesis of ideas that sort of came together at a moment when we were interested in a lot of things, making mythology relevant in a modern context, relating quantum physics to Zen Buddhism, investigating your own life, said Lily. We started out thinking of this as a comic book. We filled notebook after notebook with ideas. Essentially, that's where the script came from. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of that is pretty apparent in the film, especially, you know, the influence of the internet. But I think it's really beneficial to put yourself back in that 1999 mindset with how incredibly startling the internet must have still seemed at that time. Because it's easy to lose that, right? Because now mm. it's so saturated and it's just in your hand literally constantly you know you have internet access to the internet wherever you go um whereas back then it was still something really revolutionary that expanded people's worlds and what they could access in an unprecedented way um and yeah and i think it's that sense of like wonder and possibility that they were really tapping into the original matrix yeah i get you know you'd had movies like hackers and stuff like uh, you know early to mid 90s that had kind of it wasn't like the first but in terms of yeah questioning internet how the internet was like informing and and changing our reality the matrix really was quite it felt quite groundbreaking in that way didn't it yeah and yeah then with phantom menace obviously that's a very different prospect because the matrix was an original science fiction film and the phantom menace was a continuation of films it started like over 20 years earlier you know it was continuing on from what was already very popular and very well established so it wasn't about establishing new mythology it was about going back to existing mythology and expanding it and finding a different like part of that universe to explore yeah like and what i found when looking for interviews with george lucas is it's very hard to find interviews with him where he's explaining the intent behind the prequels without going into that like very wide perspective on things if that makes sense you know it's always about how these prequel films fit into his wider vision of star wars it's not about this is what the phantom menace is you know he does talk about that to some extent in terms of the idea of like letting go you know and that idea of attachment in terms of anakin being taken from his mother too late mm. um but for the most part it's very much he he is very very aware of what Star Wars is, and the fact that this is part of this very important piece of cinema mythology, and I I just think that 
situates it in such a different place to the matrix you know where it's all about this possibility and playfulness you know and they could do literally anything because it wasn't connected to anything else when it first came out and yeah i think that was been very freeing for the wachowskis whereas for george lucas it was a bit more of a trap you know yeah the comparisons seem almost unfair don't they really they're doing entirely different things it's, it's probably better to compare the matrix with the original star wars yeah no for sure I think that's a much fairer comparison. The Matrix was kind of scratching an itch that people might have expected and wanted The Phantom Menace to scratch, you know? I think that comes about from those unfair expectations. You can imagine George getting almost exasperated. It's like, the thing that you want is something new. Why don't you go watch something new? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm continuing a story. So it's like they wanted to cap- recapture that feeling of watching Star Wars for the first time, but you're not going to get that from a prequel of Star Wars. The, the Star Wars prequels, they're some of like the biggest budget independent movies ever made. You know, it's very much about George Lucas making the films that he wanted to make. Mm. And really, they're very, very niche films in that regard. You know, if you'd gone and picked up like a random Star Wars fan off the street in that dark period between Return of the Jedi and Phantom Menace like say before Phantom Menace had ever been announced and you'd ask that person what do you think a Star Wars prequel should be they would have come up with something radically different from what the Phantom Menace did and so in that way although to a certain extent what Phantom Menace does is more conservative more constrained than what the Matrix does I appreciate the Phantom Menace for just being so boldly what its creator wanted it to be you know, it's not mm. apologetic about its own corniness, about the fact that it does have these, like, childish qualities, you know, and it's, like, not ashamed of any of that, you know. You know that George just loves Jar Jar, and that comes through so plainly. I, I think that's a big part of the appeal of those films. Yeah, I agree. They're special because they're just... George wanted to do something, and he did it. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't happen these days. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I actually found a really good interview with George from Empire that goes into this like a bit more in terms of, you know, his personal love of something like Jar Jar and how like he felt about the fan response to that character and perhaps the more childish quality of the film. And he actually name-checks The Matrix in his response, so I thought it was quite interesting in relation to our discussion. Could you read out that part of the interview I've highlighted, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. Speaking of Jar Jar Binks, certain sections of the fan base and audience have violently taken against him. Can you see where they're coming from? Yeah, it's always been there. There's a group of fans who don't like comic sidekicks. They want to see The Terminator. They want to see a different kind of movie. But this isn't that movie. That same group of fans absolutely hated R2 and C-3PO in the first film. In the second film, they hated Yoda. He was not a well-liked character. We can't understand what he's talking about. He's green. He's a Muppet. In the third film, they hated the Ewoks. Couldn't stand the cute little sidekick characters. We don't like it. It makes it beyond a children's film. They can't stand it that there is this aspect to these movies. But comic sidekick characters have been in every single movie. And will they continue to be? And they will continue. I'm sorry if they don't like it. They should go back and see The Matrix or something. These are PG movies. I'm not going to take those kinds of characters out. Obviously, when you get a small group of fans who hate something, it becomes compounded by the internet. The press picks up the internet like it's a source. They don't realise it's just one person typing out their opinion. It's been my experience, and the experience of 20th Century Fox, that most of the people who go to the movie, at least 95%, love Jar Jar. He's extremely popular with kids. He's popular with women. 
It's funny that the 5% of the audience, even less probably, who don't like Jar Jar are the ones that get ridden about. In the toy world, Darth Maul is the biggest seller, but Jar Jar is up there. Part of it is an ageism thing. I'm cool, I'm hip, I'm embarrassed I'm liking a movie that appeals to young kids. You have to get over the fear of being declared unhip or not tough. I love George. Oh god, I lo- I just love that so much. It's great. He gets it. And and it's really interesting to me that this interview is from so long ago and yet he gets right to the heart of it about isolated people in fandom talking on the internet about something that didn't work for them and that becoming the dominant part of a conversation. Yeah. And you know that that's part of the conversation around resurrections and and what Lana wanted to do with that story and setting things straight with the whole red pill BS but exactly I don't know it's all intertwined and I just think it's so fascinating that a lot of people's perceptions of um the internet and people expressing their opinions on there hasn't really evolved beyond this that there is still that way of viewing things and how it kind of festers and becomes toxic very quickly yeah no i think so much of what george says there is so prescient um because yeah you see exactly the same things happen now there are like ridiculous news and air quotes stories written about i don't know like a hashtag on twitter that maybe had like a thousand tweets or something. so clearly it's like a tiny minority of people who feel strongly about something but it is really a tiny minority and then the media spins it into being a much bigger deal than it is um, and yeah, that's the trend that George really astutely picks up on here. Um, and yeah, I just find that observation, you know, of the fact that there's a certain embarrassment from certain viewers, you know, about how, oh, this is too outwardly, openly childish. I can't possibly admit to being a fan of this. You know, this can't be what, what I like, you know, that is almost like a certain type of person would be repelled by what the Phantom Menace was doing. Um, and yeah it's interesting to me that George correlates that type of person with you know a big Matrix fan yeah because I I think the Matrix it was considered the embodiment of cool you know when it came out like the whole like leather outfits that everyone was wearing like the bullet time like the kung fu you know all became such like staples of pop culture of the late 90s early 2000s right Um, Mm. and you did not see that same type of pop culture impact i don't think of the prequels they did have pop culture impact but it wasn't as pervasive i don't think as what the matrix achieved you know in those first few years after it came out yeah for sure i mean you didn't suddenly start having people walking around dressed like (laughs) exactly (laughs) elaborate braids didn't come into like huge fashion it's very sadly actually i think her hairstyles are great um (laughs) Yeah, I actually have um, a quote from a think piece on Bitch Media um, that I think has a really interesting take on how viewers responded to The Matrix at the time and the sort of mindset it was tapping into. Um, Could you read out what I've highlighted, please, Kirsty? The deeply philosophical Matrix trilogy draws upon centuries of white Western thought. For example, the film riffs on René Descartes' suspicions that the world we live in might not be real. It also evokes Plato's cave allegory, in which people live underground, watching shadow puppetry and believing it to be the real world. Should they manage to break free, they're met with a perplexing and terrifying reality. Anderson lives in the cave, but Neo breaks free of it. Similar explorations also exist within a broad swathe of 20th century science fiction, from the pretentious musings of Neil Stevenson wow, and Robert A. Heinlein, to the feminism of Annalee Newitt's N.K. Jemison, 
but the Matrix presented them in clear, digestible chunks calculated to fill the popular imagination. The red pill was an irresistible, easy-to-understand symbol that spoke to an entire generation of misfit nerds. If the unhappy kids of the early 90s had Nirvana and Kurt Cobain, those of the late 90s had The Matrix and Neo. At the time, the red pill was seen as a symbol of a growing awareness of the complexities and cruelties of the world. It represented a necessary suffering in search of the truth. This simplistic sense spread rapidly throughout pop culture and found its way into a variety of geeky settings, where it also became evidence of superiority. Those who had taken the red pill were more awake, more aware and more sophisticated. Those who weren't awake were sheep, doomed to wander with no sense of self-integrity. While the Wachowskis say the red pill has been appropriated, pop culture isn't value neutral and doesn't exist in a vacuum. By introducing the red pill into the world, the director's also created an opening for it to be exploited. I think I think I found this piece, like, provocative. Yes. It's a strong take, and I agree with aspects of it, like, even, like, though I'm not quite as cynical, perhaps, as this author seems to be. <laughs> Yeah, there's a kind of negative tone to it, which I can understand if it's part of a larger discussion about how it was co-opted by the alt-right. Yeah, and that is the context for this. I need to make that clear, actually. Um, So yeah, I think that's where the cynical tone comes from, right? Because that has absolutely happened. You know, the symbolism of that first Matrix has been really horribly co-opted by bad actors. I guess I would be interested in reading the whole piece, to be honest, because, you know, as, as someone who watch this film when they were quite young and starting to realize that they were queer you know if you're gonna identify that it was important to people who felt marginalized that has to be part of that it's not just people who were like incels oh absolutely yeah yeah i I do have another quote about that exact thing (laughs) (laughs) i've quote for every occasion um (laughs) i think the reason i wanted to introduce this quote now is because I think it becomes important to understand the virulence of the backlash to the subsequent Matrix films, um, which I think is like escalated <laughs> progressively um, because you still see it, unfortunately, a lot with Resurrections. And I think it's also very important to say that I don't think there was like any deliberate pandering towards you know the like alt-right types with the symbolism of the original Matrix. God, no, no. I, I think that was completely inadvertent and I think spoilers for where my personal interpretation of this is going to go later on but I think part of why Resurrections exists and why Lana wanted to come back and make it is you know being repelled by that misappropriation yeah. of that symbolism and wanting to reassert her rights over that narrative and mm. actually establish a positive statement about what these films are and what they stand for and that's a big part of what I love about Resurrections, and that's what we're hopefully building towards. Um, but yeah, that's why I included this more cynical take, so I hope that makes a bit more sense, because I know yeah, yeah it's quite negative on it in, when you isolate it, like we just did. Yeah, and to be clear, it's not like I'm disagreeing with it as a premise. I think it's because it is like an isolated part of a obviously a larger piece. So Yeah. But I, I get what they're saying, because obviously this stuff is pretty complicated, and you get into conversations around you know, an artist's responsibility, but at the end of the day, you know, these directors were two closeted trans women. Yeah. And the symbolism behind their most famous movie was like hideously co opted into something that is, you know, against everything that they personally believe in. Yeah. 
So I guess in one sense, you can see the, the temptation for Lana to come back and give those people the finger. <laughs> no, exactly. Which, yeah, oh, I, I love Resurrections. The more I think about it, it's got so many great ideas going on. And yeah, in terms of talking about like a different point of view on the marginalization that the Matrix tapped into, um, I also have another quote from a think piece in The Observer that I think gives a very important alternate perspective, you know, on like the sort of mood that the film was speaking to when it first came out. So this came out just a few months before Resurrections, right? Uh, yes. But, yeah. The film as a whole, oh, and this is about the Matrix, the original Matrix, so looking back. The film as a whole is a time capsule of how Gen X was feeling right at that particular moment. Much like The Matrix continues to live on today, a fourth film, The Matrix Resurrections, will be released in December, our Gen X wounds and ideals are resurfacing. As we came of age, we entered a world created by rich white men who saw everything in black and white, without nuance or awareness, and certainly without sympathy, of the struggles of marginalised people. Our identities and our feelings, we were told, held no value because we were just kids. If we dared to speak out, the powers that be, whether it was government, media, or even our parents, immediately shoved us back into the closets they created for us. Binary, reductive, and provincial was the systemic modus operandi of the time. The tolerance rhetoric that was so often preached back then came with a pricey condition. Keep everything that makes you unique out of sight. Who would know better about this plight than the trans community? In 1997, Ellen DeGeneres came out on her primetime TV show, she graced the cover of Time with a headline that simply read, Yep, I'm gay. Over 42 million households watched the coming out episode, a number networks rarely achieve. Yet just a year later, the network cancelled the show, citing low ratings. DeGeneres' quest to be her authentic self became a warning instead of a celebration. Yes, the 90s were a more progressive era than what came before, but how much progress was allowed when the buzzword of the time was tolerance instead of acceptance? The message for anyone who didn't identify as a cisgender, white, heterosexual person was straightforward. Stuff everything that makes you unique in a closet or you too will be shunned. Yeah, and I thought that was a really important counterpoint to have when we also have that more, you know, cynical aspect of the background to The Matrix, you know, and how it appealed to certain, like, people on the alt-right. Because it is incredibly important to highlight how it did have this incredibly powerful statement to make for like other like people who were genuinely marginalized at that time you know and i felt this like obviously it's part of a wider article you know i think it like explores more deeply about how the matrix films were a trans allegory you know which um lily i think has spoken about openly in recent years um and yeah i felt this is good to set the scene for what it was like in the 90s because i was a kid at the time you know i wasn't aware of like the ellen um news coming out or anything like that like we're not a perfect society now you know there's still much room for improvement to be made but in terms of like the repression and the suppression that was like the norm at the time when you appreciate that it does make you realize how radical the messaging of the matrix is and how powerful that would have been for people at the time it is, and honestly, I think it's still the case now. I think that things have obviously improved since the 90s, but that progression is never guaranteed. For sure. And you still see pushback today in very clear, obvious yeah. ways that are going on. Yeah, yeah. there's been some really troubling rollbacks of trans rights in particular. So, yeah, it's something that is important to never get complacent about, I think. And yeah, the Wachowskis are 100% aware of that. And yeah, I think that's a big part of why Lana wanted to come back.
Um, but I'm ex I'm kind of projecting slightly, I suppose, because I don't think she's explicitly said that. But I think that's something I like to perceive in that film. But yeah, so that's a lot of context, <laughs> basically, to the sort of time in which these respective films came out, The Matrix and The Phantom Menace. I think it's kind of fascinating to think about the Matrix, as Kirsty mentioned earlier, actually, is kind of in the same place in 1999 that Star Wars was, the original Star Wars, back in 1977. You know, so like about 20 years prior, because it was this really like bold, revolutionary science fiction film that burst onto the scene and became a pop culture phenomenon, basically. And I think, in a way, that incredible success and the incredible ability that both those films had to tap into the zeitgeist at the time, it kind of set up what was to come with the subsequent like hostility and like backlash that later films would receive um, that you see with the negative reaction to the prequels and then the negative reaction to the Matrix sequels, which we'll move on to shortly. Yeah, I think if you were to get the Wachowskis and George Lucas in a room together, they'd have a lot to commiserate over. <laughs> because <laughs> I do think there are some shared experiences to be had. Look what we've done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. What um, did we unleash? <laughs> there's a thing, and, until I'd read that George interview when he's like, go and watch The Matrix. <laughs> you know, sounds like a grumpy old man. But until I read that, it hadn't quite clicked for me. And again, I think part of it is just that I was young when The Phantom Menace came out, so I just took it at face value. But I do remember, and I know we talked about this a little bit when we did the, like, the prequel retrospective, but like people were like, I don't want to see Anakin. I don't want to see Darth Vader as a nine-year-old boy. Yeah. You know, and so it's like, yeah, well, that you probably were expecting someone cool and collected like Neo, yep, being badass, exactly. You know, yep. and it's, it, obviously there's way more to the Matrix than that, and you know, we're pretty clear where we stand. But like, I think it's perfectly valid for George to be like, well, there's a movie for grown-ups right there. Yeah, <laughs> you know, if that's what you exactly. Want. There's lots of ass kicking and punching and kicking and kung fu and yeah, all the R-rated violence you could want. <laughs> Yeah, no, so it's really interesting, I think, as an exercise to look at the space that both these movies were occupying at the time. So I think, in a way, it shouldn't have been that they were posited against each other, right? I don't think so. They're serving completely different needs. They're telling completely different types of science fiction stories. So I think yeah. it really is just a case that they were both victims of popularity. And it also just highlights the assumptions that people had about what they would have wanted from a prequel trilogy. It's, it's like that's just not the story that George had any interest in telling. Exactly. So, yeah. So this is a bit beyond yeah. the scope of what we're doing here, you know, but I did look at some old forums and stuff and you do genuinely find quite a few posts from late 90s, early 2000s, essentially bemoaning why George Lucas couldn't do with the prequels what the Wachowskis were doing with the Matrix films. But those films existed. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's fascinating to me that, you know, you can be like, but I want that, but in this universe. It's like, is it the universe that matters so much? Like, if those films exist and you can go and enjoy them right there, then, you know, if you could see George's films as a bonus. Yeah. Or just ignore them entirely if they weren't your thing. Ah. I guess, I guess if people had a really specific thing that they wanted to see from a young Darth Vader. Yeah. 
yeah i can understand it no it is understandable. All about how you channel that disappointment yeah. yeah for sure i mean did that perception continue once you got into reloaded and i know we'll get to it now but like once reloaded and revolutions were out there surely the the conversation changed oh, oh yes because... it very much <laughs> okay. changed um and i'm gonna admit the limitations of my own like looking into it as well you know, so I think I kind of stopped looking at like responses around the time the sequels came out because I knew that there would be like a sharp shift in tone, you know, and right. I kind of realized that I needed to abandon that line of research. So it was just too much um, yeah. before I got too deep into it. But yeah, I'm sure very much that people stopped saying that like <laughs> Star Wars needed to be like what the Wachowskis were doing with the, with the Matrix films because the Reloaded and Revolutions are extremely controversial films. So a bit of context um, is that they both came out in 2003 and they came out within about six months of each other, I believe. Um, as I'm sure you'll remember very well, Kirsty, she saw them in cinemas at the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, so that was quite a long wait, really. You know, it was about three and a half years, I think, between the original Matrix and Reloaded, you know, which in movie time is a long time. <laughs> Needless to say, there was a lot of time for fans to percolate on the original Matrix, you know, get hyped for these sequel movies. And they were tremendously hyped. Matrix Reloaded is an incredibly successful film, you know, made an absolute fortune. And again, I think much like Phantom Menace was a victim of its own hype, you know, because again, hype leading up to Phantom Menace, the first Star Wars film in over 15 years, that was next level hype. You know, people went absolutely apeshit for the Phantom Menace in the run-up to it. And then people will have seen, you know, the famous reaction videos and people coming out of the theatre looking a bit deflated and whatnot, you know. And I think it was a similar vibe with Reloaded. You know, people had built up all these elaborate expectations about what the sequel to The Matrix was going to be in their heads. And then Reloaded happened. And I think it was vastly different from what people had envisaged or expected. Mm. Um, I actually have a quote from Escapist magazine that I will read because I think <laughs> I need to be somewhat fair and not let Kirsty do all the reading uh, so yeah, this quote from Escapist magazine again, it's perhaps a little bit of a spicy take so be prepared to fight back against it <laughs> so it says The Matrix, meaning the original Matrix is a comfort story, but it's a trap the sequels argue that true freedom comes from rejecting external systems of control, even the power fantasies of the chosen one. True freedom comes from choosing, not being chosen. Why? Why get up? Smith demands of Neo at the end of Revolutions. Why keep fighting? Neo's answer is very simple. Because I choose to. This is what distinguishes the two Matrix sequels from other epic fantasy sagas like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. They're very much about rejecting the sorts of binary distinctions that define so many of these stories. Good and evil, us and them. Just as the bodies blur at the rave, the boundaries between human and machine blend together. So your take, Kirsty. It struck me as quite a contemporary take, so I was like, oh wow, if this came out <laughs> like <laughs> In two thousand three, that's very sophisticated. <laughs> well, yeah, because like the idea of like the boundaries between human and machine blending that is an idea that i think like resurrections explores yeah you know but before then i i, I think you know the he's right about the binary distinction but um i think that is explored most explicitly in in resurrections so yeah it's interesting binary comes yeah, up a lot I mean, in that film 
for sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um I, I definitely see why people set it apart from star wars and, and lord of the rings and i do think it has interesting things to do with you know the notion of a chosen one and that's presumably why you like reloaded so much yeah because the matrix itself kind of wraps things up quite neatly you, you watch the end of the matrix and there could easily not be another film after that yeah for sure they they had to ask interesting questions after that to justify another movie yeah so i feel like if i have a problem with the matrix is that is almost too perfect as a narrative <laughs> no, i get that <laughs> it's just like all so incredibly neat and well constructed that is excellent at what it does but like there's just none of that messiness that i tend to respond to in films that i really love I think that's again why it's a worthwhile comparison with the original Star Wars yeah. because that could have easily just been a one and done. Yeah, for right? sure. That sense of perfection, you know, I think that's a big part of why people responded to it because it's very easy to understand. It's very easy to follow. It's very easy to put yourself in Neo's shoes in that first Matrix movie, right? You know, he's kind of what I think a lot of viewers w- would want to be in that situation if you were in that world of the Matrix as established in that film, you would want to be the one like Neo who wakes up, who recognises that it's all like a lie, that it's all fake and that there's this other reality, you know, that you need to break free into and then fight for. You know, it's a very like idolised hero's journey in that way. Mm. And it's also nice that he's the one, but he also has guides conveniently to help him. (laughs) It's not just by himself. He wasn't the first one to wake up. No, exactly. It's almost like um, the Wachowskis might have read Joseph Campbell or something. (laughs) And yeah, and I think then the Reloaded basically takes that away from you. You know, it's all about dismantling the assumptions that mean the first film works as a narrative, right? I think what Reloaded does is it sort of takes away the meaning of a lot of what happened in the original Matrix because part of the conceit of Reloaded is that everything that Neo did in that first Matrix is sort of like preordained, you know, that it happened before and it would happen again. Oh, I see what you mean, like with the architect yeah, at the end. Exactly, yeah, exactly, with the architect. So he's not truly his own master, you know, it wasn't really his journey that we were watching, it was the journey that the machines had designed for him. Yeah, thinking about it now, I, I wonder if that's where they just started to lose some of that core audience. Yeah. Because that isn't a very nice message for people to get, is it? Because it makes you feel like your own life and the choices that you make are... I think it can honestly lead to a bit of nihilism. <laughs> in terms of, if you were to take it too seriously, you know, and if you had related really, really strongly to Neo in that first Matrix, and then you, you know, saw what happened in Reloaded and you really thought deeply about it in that way... And you were like, holy shit, it all meant nothing. No, but then again... Again, I'd hope people would just see it as a story, you know, and like have the chill. What he's citing here, though, that, you know, it's about Neo's choices. And they are choices. Mm -hmm. It's his his choice to keep fighting and doing what's right. That is what matters. That's what's meaningful. Yeah. No, and and I would agree. I, I don't find it a nihilistic film at all. I think it's more hopeful, of anything, because it's almost like it's trying to redefine what a heroic narrative should be you know Mm. because with the classic hero's journey model the Campbellian one like it is all preordained you know there are certain steps that you go along along the journey there are certain types of characters that you meet who help you there are other types of characters who try to thwart you um and so on and so forth 
Um, and there's all these like neat steps outlined. And I think the Matrix followed those steps quite well. And then Reloaded is basically trying to question all that and say, but what if there was a different way of going about things and you didn't have to make those types of choices, but there were other pathways open to you? You know, so it's doing something incredibly radical, to be honest. I guess I'm just really starting to see a pattern. I mean, obviously I'm joking because I've seen this pattern play out over and over with that first sequel. You know, you see it with The Last Jedi. It's it's no way I thought the story was neatly wrapped up, even if people expect a sequel. And that's what's really telling to me. It's so interesting to see this play out over and over again where people get the disappointment of a character's arc deepening or having questions that they themselves hadn't anticipated yeah and relationships going in ways that they don't expect (laughs) yeah it's just it's fascinating to me no for (laughs) sure um and in a way it's very hard to make direct comparison between what reloaded and revolutions are doing in 2003 and what attack the clones and revenge of the sith are doing in 2002 and 2005 respectively because I think Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith are both very classical narratives. They're like following pre-established narrative moulds to the T, you know, and George mm-hmm. Lucas is very open about that and very explicit about that in interviews. You know, he name checks like 1930s melodramas <laughs> for Attack of the Clones. And I love that about George, you know, I just love that he just goes for it and he's unapologetic. He likes what he likes and he does what he does with his movies. Yeah, but he knew what he was doing. Exactly, but... <laughs> With those films, he was not reinventing the will, right? He was playing into pre-existing types, pre-existing genres. And obviously Reloaded and Revolutions are both very much science fiction films, but they're attempting to do some radically subversive things and Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith are not radically subversive. Yeah. I think what you're looking back, the prequels did in terms of like for the film industry, really they were about the effects being exactly yeah and when i was looking up interviews with george that was the main thing that came across like he was asked explicitly in one interview and i don't think i have it unfortunately he was just asked why did you want to make the prequels now and he was honest and he said it's because the technology has advanced sufficiently that i can use it in these new and exciting ways and it's like a demo almost you know it's like a big tech demo and there, yeah. there is more to the prequels than that that they are more than fantastic special effects although there's plenty of that but i think george is unapologetic about that was a big part of what motivated him to make those movies the narrative is secondary to him i, I genuinely believe that i think this is what's i know i'm getting a bit off track here we're starting to defend the prequels <laughs> no i think this is something that's so frustrating for me when i still see people like bashing the effects there it's like do you not see the place that they and ilm obviously like hold in film history yeah like how that was a necessary bridge yep you know this stuff was groundbreaking yeah you might not think it holds up now 20 years later that's not shocking is it but all the stuff that you love now, these people are also making. <laughs> yeah. What Re- Reloaded and Revolutions do, the best correlation to that is The Last Jedi, as you mentioned, <laughs> Kirsty. <laughs> and I, I think, to be fair, that's partly inspired by our own experience, right? Because that's the fandom backlash that we lived through <laughs> most viscerally because we were like deeply immersed in fandom at the time that film came out and you know, it was kind of inescapable, you know, all the, like, think pieces and all the, like, whining and complaining about The Last Jedi and stuff and all the critiques. Yeah. Um, But 
in a way, I still think that what Reloading Revolutions did was far, far bolder and far more extreme than anything Class Jedi did. In terms of like the in-story actual implications. For sure, yeah, yeah. I don't know enough about Matrix fandom as its own entity. Like, I have been personally a fan of Matrix for a long time, yeah. but like, I'm not out there talking about. <laughs> you it. went on the forums. <laughs> I wasn't. Yeah, and I'm. I'm honestly, I'm kind of glad that I wasn't yeah. because, you know, it's partly why I was so quite taken aback by what they chose to do with Resurrections because I hadn't anticipated. I knew that stuff was out there, but I honestly. I hadn't even thought about how it would affect the creators themselves to see that happening. Mm. I hadn't even like really thought about the fact that they would be super aware of it. Yeah, that's really quite silly, isn't it? Because of course it would yeah. be on their radar. But no, exactly. And this yeah ties back to that more cynical piece that we had towards the beginning because obviously there is perhaps a more toxic element to Matrix fandom, unfortunately. And, and not even necessarily fandoms that implies a certain level of immersion, you know, in that world. It just took a life on of its own, Yeah, it? no, exactly. You know, it was like, it became an actual an actual term, like Red Pill. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and like it became the name of a subreddit, you know, that attracted a certain type of person. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, I think it's very clear, albeit mostly through implication, again, because the Wachowskis do not really give interviews, you know, so they tend not to be ex- super explicit about these things. But I think that's one of the most beautiful things about their work is that they let the work speak for itself. You know, and I think Matrix Resurrections is a very bold and very beautiful statement that makes it very clear how Lana in particular, because of unfortunately Lily didn't come back for Resurrections, feels about what's been done to the Matrix since it was first created and it's like a way of taking the power back, I think, that film you know, and I think that's one of my favourite aspects about it I think it's really fascinating what it does Um, so, let's see, what do I have? (laughs) Sorry, I want to make sure I don't completely lose my thread um, yeah, so in terms of that idea of Matrix Resurrections presenting like Lana with an opportunity to take back some of the control of the narrative that built up around the Matrix mythology, you know, growing far beyond the films themselves, you know, as we've kind of alluded to, um, I think it'd be good to get some background to what led to the creation of Matrix Resurrections. Could you read out the quote I have from IndieWire, please, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. In The Matrix Resurrections, Neo believes himself to be a video game designer, responsible for a popular trilogy series called Matrix. Then he hears this very inside baseball statement from his boss, Jonathan Groff Smith. Things have changed, the market's tough. I'm sure you can understand why our beloved parent company, Warner Brothers, has decided to make a sequel to the trilogy. They informed me they're going to do it with or without us. And apparently there's more than a kernel of truth to that moment in the script by director Lana Wachowski, David Mitchell and Alexander Heman, according to producer James McTeague. I think when you've had a franchise with that much potential money-making capability, there's always talk, McTeague said in the interview. It's in the same way that the Marvel Universe repeats and turns in on itself, or you have Spider-Man, or you have Iron Man, or Thor. There's always a potential to update those movies just because of the possibility of making the money and telling new stories. I shouldn't say it's just a purely fiscal thought. But yeah, look, there was versions out there, but they hadn't landed on the right version. So when Lana eventually came back around and said, look, I'm interested in making another movie, of course they went with the filmmaker who was the genesis of The Matrix. 
Yeah. And I find that so fascinating, you know, in terms of clarifying that that incredibly meta comment <laughs> in the film is in fact, you know, like a direct statement on what would have happened if Lana hadn't come back, basically. I find it hard to believe that she wouldn't get any pushback from Warner Brothers with the script. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, same. They'd be like, are you seriously going to do that? No, exactly. <laughs> I, I feel like at, towards the end, it's all quite sunny and like, oh, of course they came back to Lana. She was the genesis of the Matrix. Um, yeah, I'm not sure they would have been like, woo, we love this script that has a completely meta reference to how it assholes. <laughs> well, it's interesting to think about, like, were they already talking to other filmmakers and, and screenwriters about what their versions would have been? Or was it like Lana agreed and that was that? I feel like I do remember there being reports in the trades that plans were afoot for a Matrix 4. And that was before, you know, Lana was coming back. I think it was at mm. the time indicated that they probably weren't coming back. So that would seem to back this up, I think. Okay. Well, that's just so fascinating to think about someone else taking it on. And now we do have the very interesting parallel of the fact that George Lucas did the opposite almost. He sold to Disney yeah. and said he would never, you know, he wouldn't make Star Wars films anymore. And other people would take up that mantle. Exactly. So it's it's the opposite in a way. It's... Yeah. So in a way, the Star Wars sequels, they're kind of an object lesson for what can happen when you do let the franchise that is, you know, your baby in a way, like go and you relinquish your control of it to a studio because that is what happened with the Star Wars sequels. And, you know, we've like discussed it to death in terms of the, the individual sequel films and you know how successful each sequel film is like i think kirsty and i can safely say we both have a lot of love still for force awakens and especially the last jedi but yeah at the same time you can definitely see like a radical change in direction with those films relative to what george was doing with the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy right in terms of the priorities of those films and what they were and their purpose really why they existed you know because I, I hate to sound cynical, so I do genuinely love the sequel trilogy era and the characters and Force Awakens and Last Jedi, etc. But those films exist because Disney brought Star Wars and they wanted to start making more Star Wars movies quickly to make money. <laughs> that is the craven reason why those films existed. And obviously, also fundamentally, Matrix 4 exists because Warner Bros. wanted to make money, you know. But at the same time, Lana, well, I'm sure she got paid to make Matrix 4. And I'm sure she likes earning money, you know, who wouldn't? She also has that personal connection to that film, right? And she has something very personal to her experience of the entire franchise that she was able to imbue Resurrections with. And the creators behind the sequels, so JJ and Ryan, they also have very personal attachments to Star Wars and a clear deep love for it. But that's not the same as being the people who actually were the originators of that mythos, which is the case of Lana. So, yeah, I think it's fascinating to, again, look at those points of divergence between the different franchises and see like, what happens as a result of that divergence. Yeah, and it means the creators do end up having interesting conversations with you know what their relationship to the property is and where they want to take things and... You know, do they want to kind of circle the things that they loved since childhood or do they want to kind of grow beyond that? Yeah, for um, sure. 
and I know we have a slightly different take on The Force Awakens from what the consensus out there seems to be. Like, especially these days, I think people were warmer on it at first, but now there seems to be an almost like, it's just a new hope. And I do feel like there's a lot more going on underneath the surface. Yeah. I've, I don't, again, I'm like, I don't know these people are making projections. <laughs> but like, if you listen to J.J. Abrams' commentary for The Force Awakens, and he recorded that like after the movie's release, and he makes references several times to like questions that people had had for him or criticisms that he'd heard. He's very aware of the reaction to yeah. it. And I think there's like a complicated... He was kind of trying to straddle a few different things with creating these brand new characters and brand new dynamics that would go to interesting places after he'd finished that film. Uh, they do go to interesting places within the film, but it's obviously just an introduction. And also trying to bring back the magic of the original trilogy that was so important to people after the prequels. Yes. Um, so I, I, he had his work cut out for him, and I think in many ways he succeeded. But I, I do think in a way his confidence was shaken. And I think you would see the results of that with The Rise of Skywalker in some ways. Yeah. If Matrix Resurrections is Lana Wachowski acknowledging that she has heard people's responses to the original Matrix and absorbed them, but is then basically saying you're allowed to make whatever you want of the film, but know for a fact that I have a radically different intent with this. <laughs> and I am going to make this a film about love in Neo and Trinity, then I think The Rise of Skywalker, sadly, is J.J. Abrams kind of being like, yeah, I heard you. I'm trying to like make things better for you. He might not see it that way, to be fair. We don't know because he hasn't talked about it. I've seen some fans after The Matrix Resurrections came out, people were like, oh, this in my mind is like what episode nine should have been in some ways. In terms of it's like messaging the tone at the end of the movie for example that that sort of thing i don't know if i can think of it exactly the same way i get where people are coming from but i think ultimately for me the matrix and star wars are so different in terms of what they do um but i guess in the overall attitude of the creators and the confidence they have uh, in, in their own storytelling instincts I, I can understand that to an extent yeah so at the end of revolutions Neo basically dies. He becomes like the mm. Matrix Jesus. He sacrifices himself to the machines so that the whole thing can like be rebooted, you know, in like a better way, and that Zion can be free from the machine attacks. I think that's what happens at the end of Revolutions. I'm never sure. Um, but yeah, that's my very basic and simplistic understanding. And then with this new film, the idea is that the arbiters behind the Matrix literally resurrect the bodies of Neo and Trinity because they've recognised the incredible connection that those two share and they're exploiting that connection between Neo and Trinity as a sort of engine to power the Matrix. Mm, the dyad. So I definitely think with the, the centering of Neo and Trinity's relationship as someone who always loved their love story in the original films, yeah. to, to see that centred and be really like the core of Resurrections was an absolute delight. Yeah. No, I found it wonderful. One of my critiques of Resurrections, if anything, is that there's a certain stretch in the middle and there's narrative reasons why it happens. There's a long stretch where Carrie Ann Moss just isn't there. And I was like, I want more Trinity. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that would be one of my babyish um, critiques. Um, but yeah, so it obviously 
has that central narrative idea, right, of the exploitation of this love that these characters share. And I kind of love the many ways in which they frame that. You know, so they have both the idea is that they've got to keep the characters close, but always separate. So they have these systems surrounding Neo and Trinity respectively that are designed to keep them apart. So in the latest rebooted Matrix, where Neo and Trinity are the engine, Trinity has a fake family and her husband is called Chad. <laughs> and I just love that because obviously it's funny, but I think it's also emblematic of a point that Lana's trying to make where the Matrix is sort of designed to keep these people in these really like inane, predictable boxes, you know, and how do... I don't think there's many male names more inane and predictable than Chad. I'm very sorry if you're listening to this and you're called Chad. That's really mean. But it's like a stereotypical generic man name. Yeah, it it has that connotation. And, you know, however you feel about it, it does. Yeah, exactly. So I'm very sorry. It's not personal, Chad, if you're listening out there somewhere. Um, I mean, I think it is the guy's real name as well. Oh, really? Is it the actor's name? I think so, yeah. Okay. I think he was like the stunt guy or like some kind of coordinator on the John Wick movies as well. Like he's he's a friend of Oh my God, I love that. I did not realise any of that and that makes it even better to me. That's fantastic. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and like Neo has like a whole, like assortment of handlers (laughs) surrounding him. And honestly, it's so funny and I think it's deliberately funny, um, but it's also like emblematic for the cynicism of the Matrix, you know, in this world. And I think that's all a, a larger metaphor, right? For the cynicism of the movie making industry and how yeah. it takes these like relatively pure and optimistic and hopeful ideas and twists them so that they become marketable and that they can be easily packaged. You know, and I think this film is very much about giving that whole system the finger, right? There's a reason why they parody a marketing meeting in the film. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I was going to refer to that as like the scene where that's most clear. Like, you know, they're talking about what does the Matrix mean? What what should we do with a new one? Yeah. And you have, I, I don't know how to describe it, a lot of like predictable, inane, somewhat like, this, you know, you get all these different characters, you get like sycophants and people trying to be edgy and like, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's funny. And I think this ties back into that early quote that I got you to read out about how you know that whole original matrix of the like red pill blue pill thing it was not intentional but it created a vacuum that was exploited and that people filled with whatever they wanted that to mean you know so it was so perfect you know as symbolism and so universally appealing that it was also dangerous in the fact that people like found themselves able to project whatever like grievances and worldviews they already had onto it you know mm-hmm. it became sort of like tabula rasa a uh, blank slate and they could just like make it what they wished i think in this film it's lana filling that tabula rasa with bright bright colors <laughs> and saying no 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 that's not what this is this is what this is and it's all about neo and trinity as I said, that was a really nice surprise. I hadn't thought much about what the story was actually going to be. I remember being like, oh, so they're going to have to do something with like how these characters are back. Like, is it set in the past? Is it, you know, is it in the Matrix? Is it out the Matrix? It just kind of made you curious as to what on earth they were going to do. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I, like Lana, in one of the rare 
interview she gave about this movie, I think it was at the premiere of the film, um, and she was speaking to the Associated Press, um, she explained that like a big impetus for her in coming back for this movie was that her parents passed away and she was obviously going through like a substantial grieving process because of that. Um, and she explained that I needed something to help me with the grief and inventing a story where two people come back to life was healing and comforting and I was non-judgmental. I just wrote it. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. But then I read part of the story to that woman right there and she was pointing someone off camera and said, oh my God, you have to tell this story. So that I think I've seen like more elaborate versions of that story. You know, I don't think that's the only time Lana's said that. Um, but I think that's also a really powerful thing, right? That this story was inspired by that very immediate and personal experience of grief. And that is almost like using fiction to make the world right again you know because obviously tragically her parents aren't going to come back you know once they've passed but through the power of film and through the power of fiction you can do whatever the hell you like you know and I think that must be one of the most incredible things about being a filmmaker that you have that creative possibility open to you you know of being able to open whatever narrative doors you wish and yeah I think that's really magical that Lana was able to do that yeah I agree it's beautiful. So I'm aware we should probably wrap up. I'm sure it's something we can come back to in other ways in the future. But yeah, is there anything else you'd like to say to wrap it up and maybe like bring it back to the compare and contrast thing with Star Wars, Kirsty? I just I do feel for genuine fans who were disappointed by Resurrections, and I've listened to lots of reactions and read reviews and like talked to people I know who genuinely like they were not part of that toxic culture yeah. remotely. For sure. And they just they just feel like Resurrections is not a great film and that's that is another like totally different thing it's you know something that I always remind myself when I come across someone who's really not a fan of The Last Jedi people have their own reasons and it's not always part of this larger culture war and I also get it if some people are like I just didn't want it to be part of the culture war why maybe they feel frustrated that Lana felt like she had to respond to that stuff and in a way I get it because I'm like it's it kind of sucks that all of that happened that Lana felt like the narrative was being pulled away from her and Lily and she had to set the record straight in a way that isn't that's that's terrible isn't it it's sad um I'm glad that she was able to do it in a film that I think is successful and beautiful but I also gather some people were just like I just wanted to see a movie yeah (laughs) you know it's kind of frustrating in a way that so much of popular culture these days does get sucked up into the culture war it does feel like a downward spiral and at a certain point people might have to say enough is enough it's not like saying that you know art can't be political or is there a way for it to be apolitical there isn't really if you're talking you know in a complete sense but I also I, I get that there's that fatigue there at this point um and I'm just I'm wary you know, we've talked about it many times before of where Star Wars is going in terms of not not just the the quality of the storytelling or how I feel about it personally, but who is it speaking to, who is it resonating with, what is it saying, and is it really truly talking to the younger generation yeah. at this point? Um, I hope so, but I just don't want it to keep pandering to a certain a toxic crowd out there. So, um yeah and uh, just also reminding myself that there are many creators involved it's not just down to one singular voice anymore and that's kind of what makes things so interesting and what ultimately 
is going to separate these two franchises like the matrix very much i think will always be the wachowski thing that's all really really well stated and yeah i would back up everything that kirsty's just said it's something i found really refreshing and heartening about resurrections is the fact that i do feel like the first third or so is extremely self-aware extremely meta but then i think after that it kind of settles down and it does become like a, a narrative in its own right you know it's less about commenting on the nature of the matrix as a franchise you know which i do think the first third is doing explicitly and it becomes more about this is a story we're telling about these characters and how they finally achieve their happy ending basically you know and i love the simplicity and the purity of that um because yeah i think if it had completely given itself over to the commentary on toxic fandom and the culture war it would have been a very negative film overall you know and i would not really have enjoyed that sort of tone but i think because we just get that limited aspect of that at the beginning is okay um and yeah and then to just completely diverge so i don't have an eloquent progression from that topic to what i now want to say um in relation to star wars i think i'd agree that it's important to not look at new star wars as just disney star wars which i do sometimes see it dismissively referred to again unfortunately often by bad actors but i'm sure not always um because i think it's important to remember that there are still people telling the stories uh, that we're getting from star wars now and obviously there's questions over you know what level of creative autonomy the creatives behind the various films and shows have etc but i do believe that there is there are still stamps of authorship and you absolutely see those stamps of authorship on the sequel trilogy films even on rise of skywalker that i'm not a huge fan of you can tell that's a jj abrams film and i do believe he put like passion and love into that film even if it didn't ultimately work for me you know so i think that it's interesting to note the divergence between them in terms of one franchise, The Matrix, staying with the Wachowskis and Star Wars, leaving George Lucas and going over to his studio. But it's also important not to make assumptions about what that means in terms of are these films and shows, etc. still capable of being personal and having genuine meaning and intent behind them? Because I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. <laughs> I do, it's the thing, Resurrections is, it's a, it is very much a movie of its time and that there are a lot of these conversations going on about the authorship and the the artistry and you know creativity behind these big properties because that's so much of what people watch and enjoy these days yeah you know we haven't really talked about marvel but that's a similar thing isn't it sure i think it's going to be an ongoing conversation it's just pretty fascinating to have it as such a, a meta concept within one of the movies themselves yeah exactly in, in some ways resurrections feels a bit like a relic right in this era where everything's always about expanding outwards you know and creating spin-offs and stuff i feel like resurrections felt like something of a final artistic statement on the matrix franchise you know and i think they've made it clear in interviews that there's no plans to do more matrix films I really hope that they hold to that. Yeah, same. <laughs> I, I think it's a perfect ending, to be honest. 
Like, and I feel like, you know, if you continue it yet again, you're like, something's happened, the Matrix being rebooted again. I think then it starts to go beyond self-parody. You know, it's like, just please stop. Yeah, but people would have said that about Star Wars in the past, and now it's infinite. That's true. So yeah, I I could easily be proven wrong, never say never, etc. But for now, Matrix Resurrections feels pretty final, and I'm happy with that. I think it's a good ending, and I like it a lot. But yeah, I feel like that's as good a note as any to end on. So let's bring it to a close. So I'm Rachel, and you can find me on Twitter at Rachel1918. I'm Kirsty, and you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers4. Until next time, bye! Bye!